welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and FocusWire's weekly podcast about the innovators in travel, transportation, and hospitality. Today, we have Dean Donovan with us. Dean is the Managing Director of Diamond Stream Partners. You may not have heard of them, but Diamond Stream Partners was responsible for launching Volaris Airlines, helped launch Stellar Labs, a software company focused on global distribution technologies for private aviation, and has made investments in companies like Portside, GPMS International, uh, Elroy Air, and Ampere. Dean epitomizes the type of people I love interviewing on these podcasts because he's been operating behind the scenes with deep industry knowledge for a long time. Thanks for joining us, Dean. Thanks very much. And you're too kind. (laughs) Um, So we like to start off all these the same way as you know, uh, which is for us to ask you how you got here. Yeah, so I grew up in the Bay Area um, and hung around uh, the People's Computer Center in Palo Alto when I was a kid. But when I got out of school, I was very, very interested in automobile production and So I went to work for a software company that was involved in trying to help improve that facet of the world, uh, manufacturing and and worked in that for a while and then went to to Bain & Company. And at Bain & Company, I got involved in turning around large businesses that were underperforming, uh, that needed a lot of resources and effort. And through that, I again got involved in the auto business. I ran the auto practice for a while and then got involved in the aviation business, uh, which is a very challenging business and ran the aviation practice. And it was really that latter experience um, that that led me to Volaris, where a former client of mine called me and said, uh, we should really start an airline in Mexico. <laughs> and uh, after, uh, after my partner, uh, uh, I picked him up off the floor because he thought I was absolutely mad to, to even suggest such a thing. We, uh, we got into that and we went and we pitched uh, Taka uh, to be our partners in that deal. And uh, that turned out well. And, and we, founded, we founded Volaris, which has been a very successful company. And from there, uh, you know, my career in, in travel and aviation really got going. Uh, founded a travel analytics company called CMA. Uh, And then uh, eventually, five, six years ago, got involved in exclusively uh, aerial mobility investing, which is what led us to the stellar investments and some of the other investments that that you mentioned. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I love being in the aerial mobility industry and the aviation industry is uh, it's really and and something I couldn't have predicted 20 years ago, but it's really in the midst of probably the biggest transformation since the 1940s and early 50s when jet engines became kind of the predominant way of getting people around in the air. So it's, uh, it's an absolutely phenomenal time for the industry and, and it's an exciting place to be. So I wanna delve a little bit into, we can go back to a few of these different things, but specifically, why is this now the most exciting time? I think obviously there's the PR headlines. We all see the things about flying cars, but from an industry perspective, like, you know, the, there's a famous tagline from Founders uh, Fund. Uh, we, we wanted flying cars. We got 140 characters. And uh, there, it seems to be now we're actually getting flying cars. And I think a lot of people said, well, why, why hasn't this happened before? What is it about the industry and the confluence of technologies that, technologies that makes now special? Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty simple. 
Uh, it, it comes down to two things. The first and by far the most important is changes in propulsion. So basically propulsion since aviation started has been about exploding fossil fuels in an engine on the wing. And whether that's a jet engine or it's a prop, that's the way it's worked. And there's an enormous amount of efficiency loss when you do that. So when you move to electric propulsion, uh, you, can, you can get a much more efficient uh, energy conversion, and that makes for a much lower cost aircraft. So, you know, the most efficient turbofan engines are about 66, 65% efficient. But to do that, you need an enormous engine, like the kind of thing that's on a 777. With an electric engine, you can put a very small motor onto a wing, uh, propel, use electricity to propel it, which is much cheaper than burning fossil fuels at much higher efficiency, and the efficiency will be more like 95%. So the thing that we, we know about transportation is cost is really important. So when you make engines much more efficient, and you also change the scale of aircraft at which engines can be much more efficient, you're going to have a revolution. And that's what's going on right now. Uh, the, other, the other thing that's happening, which is also critical, um, but probably not as fundamental as a driver as propulsion is electric controls. So uh, artificial intelligence, advancing software systems have made it possible to electrically control aircraft remotely. So you see that in drones and light drones under 55 pounds, but you're also starting to see that in larger aircraft with companies like Reliable Robotics or Skyrise or, uh, or X-Wing, where they're literally flying these aircraft remotely. And obviously that's been around in the military for a long time with the Predator drones and other kind of drones that in situ has been, been making. But when you combine those two things together, uh, you, you dramatically reduce costs on the labor side, you dramatically reduce costs on the propulsion side, you change the range of, of the kind of aircraft you can fly. So you can fly smaller aircraft more efficiently. And you also change the scalability because the biggest barrier to the growth of the aviation industry is a shortage of pilots. So you put all that stuff together, you're gonna have lots and lots more aircraft over the next 10 years than you had in the last 50. And as a matter of fact, I think we're gonna see the largest production runs of aircraft since World War II. Uh, over the next 10 years. Super exciting. Is the, is the ability to do that electric propulsion having to do, I feel like a lot of us, a lot of us follow along with Tesla, right? And I think there's always the, um, how many miles can the, the new Tesla battery go is kind of like a, you know, consistently it's ticked up and up over the last five years. Is it battery storage that has allowed electric propulsion to happen? Um, is there, is there a particular reason why this is, is more possible now, I guess? And I mean, I guess I'm getting at the core technology development that, that maybe you've identified. Yeah, great, great question. Yeah, it is battery storage is part of it. Um, and, you know, battery densities increased dramatically over the last 15, 20 years uh, with lithium-ion batteries being introduced. Uh, it's also battery cost, which has declined a lot. Uh, and so, you know, the biggest challenge with aircraft is weight is really, really important. And so, if you were to try to build a 737 with batteries, you know, it would weigh hundreds and hundreds of tons uh, just in batteries. And so when you make those batteries cheaper and lighter, that helps a lot. Uh, it's also true though that the progress in automotive has helped 
develop concepts around hybrid electric uh, uh, aviation and propulsion systems that could be distributed. And then software systems enable distributed propulsion. So, you know, before it was kind of hard to coordinate many, many different motors on an aircraft. They were, you know, you usually had two or four and to really do something like a drone, which takes a lot of rebalancing of, of the rotors, uh, you need sophisticated software systems. So that's helped as well, but it's primarily been batteries. Very cool. Rolling back to the, the beginning part of your career here. So you mentioned you were at Bain in an aviation practice. We just we had just had Alex Cruz from British Airways on the podcast. who founded another uh, airline that ended up becoming part of Whaling, and um, he also came from a consultant firm. And I can't help but asking, who are all these people at aviation practices who all of a sudden go start airlines? Is this something that people out of Accenture and Bain are? There seems to be a pattern here. You know, tell us a little bit about that that initial starting process for Valaris. Yeah, so um, you know, aviation's a small world. And a lot of people who are on the consulting side in aviation eventually go into the carriers. So, you know, the chief commercial officer, um, kind of number two guy at Volaris was at Bain. Uh, and, you know, if you look in private aviation, for example, Walton Matilda is run by the guy who used to run LEK's aviation practice. So there's a lot of movement back and forth. And that's because aviation is an extremely analytical business, right? It's a network business. There's a lot of moving pieces and it's a very challenging business if you're going to make it profitable. So uh, consultant skill sets, pretty good for, for helping with that. And, um, you know, there's others who have, who've done it as well. A guy like David Spurlock, who started EOS um, is another consultant who was a BCG who did this sort of thing. So I think there's a good fit between the skill sets. Uh, in terms of you know, this particular deal, Valaris, how that happened was, you know, the aviation practice had helped work uh, with Roberto Preet when Taka had some challenges at the beginning part of the, of the century. And so there were a lot of ex-Bain guys in that business. So when we wanted to go out and start a business, it was kind of like having a family around the table. We, we called Roberto and said, hey, we think that uh, we should start an airline in Mexico. And he said, well, we're thinking about new opportunities in aviation. And so we went down and we had a four and a half hour meeting and literally all the people at the table were, were connected in some way, which, you know, which was terrific. It fosters trust. It, it, it also means you're all speaking the same language. And, and at the end of the four and a half hour meeting, uh, we, uh, we agreed that we were gonna move forward uh, but not before uh, Enrique Beltonena, who is the current CEO of Valaris, uh, looked at me and he said, Dean, what you have to understand is Mexico is for Mexicans. In other words, he was telling me that uh, we would never start an airline in, Me in Mexico because we weren't, uh, we weren't Mexican. And, and, and actually, it was great pushback. We eventually got Carlos Slim and Televisa involved, Emilio Ascarga involved in the deal and, and made it uh, a four-way partnership partly as a result of that feedback. But I, I did remind uh, Enrique of that in 2018 when he became a Mexican citizen. And he told me, yeah, of course, I was right all along. So, uh, so anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of how we got, got that started and, and, uh, and you know, how the aviation practices played a role. Uh, I'm, I'm interested, Dean, you said when you were telling us how you got here, 
that you mentioned that you were going to go to Mexico to launch a low-cost carrier and there were some fairly um, surprised reactions. I mean, how did you persuade people that this was a good idea? And what was it that made you realize that it was a good idea? That's a great question. So, you know, low-cost carriers are, are uh, something that I'd had some experience with before, both in terms of trying to defend against that, but also in terms of uh, when we were in, in Bain, Dallas back in the day, we worked, we worked for Greyhound and they came to us and said, geez, Southwest is, is wreaking havoc with our business. What do, what do we do? And we looked at the economics of that and said, well, you know, there's not a lot you can do. Aviation costs are coming down faster than bus costs. It's a faster way to get there. So you've got, you've got a competitor that's both cheaper and faster. And, uh, and so that's a pretty compelling proposition. And it, it's actually, you know, created kind of my framework for thinking about transportation businesses um, throughout, which is, you know, there's always a premium piece to transportation, but most of the, of the transportation market is about providing a good service at very low cost. And so when we looked at Mexico and we thought about uh, a low cost carrier in Mexico, what we realized it was the biggest market in the world that didn't really have a highly developed low cost carrier. And not only was that the case, but if you looked at the bus market in Mexico, it was the biggest bus market in the world at the time. And, and beyond that, you had a duopoly in the market between Aeromexico and Mexicano that had been owned by the government um, quite recently, where every year they would raise fares and the rest of the world, fare, real fares were declining. And every year volume was flat. And in the rest of the year, volume in the rest of the world, volume was growing by about one and a half times uh, GDP every year. And so you looked at all of those things and you said, this market needs a low cost carrier. It has an enormous mode switching opportunity. It's got two competitors that are, are not really oriented towards serving the mass, vast majority of Mexicans. This is, this is an absolute no brainer. And, uh, and I think once we got past some of the reluctance around investing in Mexico, and, and of course at that time, you know, Mexico was not that far from one party rule and it, it did not have the investment reputation it does now. So we had to, to get over some of those hurdles. But once we got over those hurdles, the investment case was very, very compelling. And, and part of the way that we, we got over those hurdles was getting the right Mexican partners into the deal. Yeah. How um, hands-on or not were you once the airline had actually launched and was operational? Yeah, so uh, we had a great team. I mean, Enrique is an absolutely terrific CEO and uh, he's, got, he's got strong opinions and he's, uh, he's usually right. But one of the great things about Enrique, uh, who, you know, we mulled over long and hard about who to get for that role and, and finally settled on him because he, he was really the obvious target. He had been the COO of, of Taka previously and we all knew him. Uh, you know, one of the things that Enrique is very good at is he's not only is he a strong leader, but he's actually very, very good at soliciting help from his board. And 
I always thought that the, that the board at Valaris was a really terrific resource for him. And it worked together really, really effectively, partly, partly because um, Roberto Creed, I think, is a natural leader in terms of bringing people together in a, in a positive and productive way. And so what that really enabled, kind of that combination between the harmony on the board and the, and the close cooperation and affinity between the board members and Enrique's openness to getting help led us all to contribute in different ways. And so uh, I turned out to spend an enormous amount of time on the company, especially in the early years, facilitating different things. And, and I can give you a couple of examples of that if, if, if it's of interest. But I wasn't alone. I mean, we, we had an enormous amount of help from Taka. And then we had a lot of help from Televisa on the media side. And we had a lot of help from, from Endorsa in other ways. So it was a team effort. It, it, it's interesting, um, David referenced that we spoke to Alex Cruz of British Airways. We also spoke to uh, Ben Baldanza of Spirit Airlines um, late last year. And one of the things that we were discussing with both of them is how they learned off other low-cost carriers in their markets. So, you know, there was the Southwest and the Jet Blues that Spirit was learning from, and there was the EasyJet and the Ryanairs that Alex was learning from. Were you doing the same with what you were doing with Valaris? Were you eyeing what other low-cost carriers around the world had done, or was the market so very unique to Mexico there? No, we absolutely were. Uh, we, we learned a lot from the low-cost carriers all around the world. And that really accelerated when Emborsa um, and Televisa left the investment group in 2010 and were replaced by Indigo because Indigo had a portfolio of, of five low-cost carriers. And so the sharing between those five companies has, has really been quite extraordinary, including doing co-purchasing agreements with Airbus. But in the early days, uh, we, we did the same. So one of the really pivotal points in the early part of the, of the company's development was when we brought Mark Hill down to talk to the management team. And, and Mark, as you may know, was one of the founders of, of WestJet uh, and, and really ran strategy for WestJet in the early days. And, and he had you know, some very, very strong opinions about how to build a low-cost carrier. One of them, uh, which you know, we subsequently confirmed in many, in many different ways and, and by many different people and looking at many different carriers was, you know, play your game and not their game. And so when, when we started the airline, uh, some of the board members thought that we should focus on the three big cities in Mexico. And Mark came down and said, hey, why serve those markets, which are business markets, when you could serve the visiting friends and relatives market and you could go into Western Mexico where there's less competition, but there's a tremendous latent demand by ordinary Mexicans for air services. And so, you know, partly in response to his guidance and partly um, just through a general discussion between the board and the management team, we took that direction. And actually that was probably the most pivotal decision in the history of the company because it really got us focused on visiting friends and relatives as the core of the company and on Western Mexico, which was the fastest growing and, uh, and most robust part of the Mexican economy and ultimately you know, led to the company's uh, success. Interesting. 
You said something interesting there about how um, gray lines, you know, costs and bus costs were not decreasing the same cost as aviation uh, were. Um, my syndicate ground control just put some money into a company called Landline and you might be familiar with them. And what they're trying to do is a kind of co-chair bus network. And in the process of doing that research, I came across all this stuff about how the CRJ 200 a regional, you know, uh, 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 aircraft is being retired in favor of a lot of different um, other alternatives. Um, France and Germany are banning regional air. It, it seems like there's an interesting development happening right now. Uh, in the aviation market. And our theory was that there's, that there's an opportunity for buses to come back. But how are you looking at this landscape for the role of different parts of the aviation kind of stack? Yeah, this is, this is super exciting. And I think this is an area where investor momentum and public visibility is perhaps a little bit inconsistent with at least where I see the, the biggest opportunities. So if you really think that stimulation is driven by the cost of transportation, what you wanna look at is you wanna look at things like cost inversions, right? Which is exactly what Greyhound experienced back in those days and exactly what Belarus took advantage of in Mexico with the bus market. And, and so when you, when you change the propulsion costs uh, you know, the costs associated with propulsion in aircraft, and you can actually change that in much smaller aircraft than 737s, you're really going to change regional transportation. So um, Ampere, one of the companies that we invested in, is working on a twin otter conversion. And one of the things that really caught our attention in that, and, and for those of you who don't know, a twin otter is a 19-seat uh, aircraft, prop aircraft, uh, that's really well suited for regional transportation. Uh, it's been around for a long time. It's sort of a step up from a Cessna caravan. And we, we looked at the cost numbers and said, geez, you know, if, if you convert this to hybrid electric propulsion, you can drive the cost to transport a person a mile in a seat down below what it costs someone to drive. And as soon as you start to see those kinds of economics, you start to create the potential towards switching. Now, if you look at the inner city travel market under 500 miles, between 50 and 500 miles, leave aside commuting for a second. If you, if you invert the costs of, of uh, air and auto in that market, you're talking about enormous numbers of trips and 95% or 97% of those trips are via auto. And so if you just got 10% of those trips converted to air, you would have passenger volume now, not dollars, but you would have a larger air market domestically than you have in all of domestic commercial aviation right now. And, and you know, that is, that is just staggering to think about when you think about how many aircraft would be produced because these aircraft are smaller, right? They'd be 20 seats or 30 seats uh, instead of, you know, 200 seats. And then what kind of incredible convenience that could mean and what kind of social changes it could mean for, for people in this country. Uh, it would connect rural communities. Uh, it would open up entirely new destination resorts that could be much smaller scale, much more boutique. Uh, it could create long distance commuting. So, uh, that kind of cost inversion is what we're really focused on at Diamond Stream when we look at electric aviation. And, and you know, as we look at shorter haul travel, uh, buses might actually 
be cheaper or they might be more expensive than, than regional aviation in that case, but it would certainly, um, it would certainly open up a new opportunity for air in that market. So I'm curious, what is your, are like, are buses dead, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, or regional buses dead in 20 years? What, what is your kind of like, I, I think, you know, theory about how the transportation stack, you know, kind of plans up is I think like in local mobility, right, there was, you know, we used to have taxis and public transit, and then it's been sliced and diced into every single little you know, potential way you can share a taxi now, or you can bike, or you can electric bike, or whatever. And you have every single price convenience, you know, a point there. Um, do you believe that, like, the idea that a bus over a hundred miles will just not exist anymore and will be substituted by some of these other forms of transportation, or, or yeah? Yeah, so one of, the, one of the good things about buses is they can go anywhere. So I doubt buses will be uh, extinct in 10 years. I, I just think there's a flexibility there that aircraft don't have. And, you know, we haven't got into eVTOL aircraft and UAM in this conversation yet, uh, which we can do in a second. But just in terms of fixed wing regional aircraft, there's not an airport everywhere. And even if there is an airport everywhere, Aircraft costs aren't just a function of how much it costs to fly per hour. It's a function of how full the aircraft is. And so if you can't fill the aircraft, it gets expensive fast. And, and so you have to think about what kind of network would really make sense for the carriers to think about what kind of network would really make sense for the bus carriers. And, and my guess is there's, there's going to be room for both because there's just not going to be enough um, volume on some of these routes that makes sense to fly an entire aircraft into a remote airport, whereby a bus with kind of its enhanced flexibility is going to make sense in some cases. And back in the day, you know, that was exactly the advice we gave to Greyhound. Interesting. I want to rewind a little bit to something you said, you, you mentioned there were these economic conditions in Mexico and kind of rewound to a time where you said Mexico had more like almost de facto one party rule and it wasn't as you know positive of a business community. Can you identify anywhere else in the world right now that you think you look at and, and you go, that place has somewhat similar dynamics, you know, Indonesia, Africa, you know, emerging economies. Is there any place that if you were starting an airline today that you would identify? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And one that, um, you know, is a, is a tough question to answer. You know, the real, the real question there is, is there, are there places that have enough regulatory framework and uh, enough uh, regulatory and governmental stability to make that happen? And I think the, the answer is um, most of those opportunities have actually been um, taken up at least by somebody. Doesn't mean that they couldn't be executed better. I mean, if you look at Brazil, you had Goal and then you had Azul and, and so on and so forth. So I think there's always opportunity to do something better, but there's not an obvious opportunity um, to me around low cost carriers for the next, next low cost carrier. Now, there are, you know, there are various regulatory barriers around ownership in the airline business. And so um, I'm not looking for low cost carrier deals every day, like say the Frankies would be at Indigo. And so the, um, the 
bigger opportunities today are, I think, probably around relaxing uh, regulatory ownership restrictions that make it possible for new owners who have high expertise to, to get in and, and help a market where there might be a low cost carrier, but it might not be a really high quality one. Um, but you know which specifically those markets are, there's a lot of low cost carriers out there right now. It's it's an interesting point that you that you raised there. I mean, it's now 15, 16 years since the Valaris launch and the NAD investment, and you've not done something similar since on that scale. Is that because the conditions haven't been that right for that amount of time? No, I think I think it's more that we see the opportunity to apply the same sort of um, concepts into electric aviation around stimulation. So it's it's been more about following the technology than it's been about uh, the fact that there's no opportunities. I mean, we've looked at multiple low cost carrier opportunities over the last 15 years. And, and there have been some interesting ones. You know, we just have decided to, to pursue a different path. If we can go move on to the electric aviation, as you call it now then. So mm -hmm. I attend many aviation conferences a couple of times a year. World Aviation Festival here in the UK is an excellent conference. But the subject of electric aviation and propulsion and those kind of things is either like a sidebar conversation or it's not, or it's completely non-existent. And I wondered if we could get your perspective on perhaps why that is, that it isn't, that kind of conversation is yet to move into the mainstream when you hear executives from some of the biggest carriers in the world talking, they're still, you know, they're still very much talking about merchandising and distribution and all those kind of things, and less about some of the things that are very close to your heart and, and many others. Yeah, it's... Um... It's, it's interesting, and, and I'd say the, the core reason is that the market's emerging, and it's a totally different market than commercial yeah. aviation. So, you know, if you think about a commercial aviation market uh, and, you, and you look at kind of the different pieces of it, commercial aviation markets fly into big airports that have eight, 9,000 foot runways. They, they go into huge facilities that have massive terminals. Uh, they, they fly large aircraft with turbofan engines that have 180 seats. And, you know, 95% of the business is focused on 150 airports. So you, you look at that and then you take a look at, uh, you took, take a look at where the electric aviation business is. It's really right at the bottom of the market right now. So you've got the light drone business, which is more of an inspection, aerial inspection, um, you know, photography, uh, you know, and, and sort of specialized applications. I was looking at a fruit picking application today. So that's really kind of super micro mobility, almost automation replacing farm worker type of thing, that application. But then you look at that on the uh, on the deployment side for part 135 aircraft, which is the step down from commercial aircraft, kind of the next operator category down from that. And you're talking about nine seat aircraft and you're talking about a lot of freight type of stuff. So freight will emerge first and, and then it will probably be regional aviation. And these things are still two, three years away. So I think that's why they're not being talked about at commercial aviation conferences. 
what's happened is there's a whole different set of conferences uh, that have a completely different set of people that are talking about all of those things. And, and those have proliferated. Now there is some connective tissue between the two worlds. And so what you, what you see is for example, investments like uh, the investment that United Airlines made in Archer where they've, they've decided that, that the Archer vehicle could be a good uh, connection vehicle for them. So if they fly into SFO, but they wanna bring some passengers up to Napa, a, a you know, four seat electric vehicle for premium traffic might make a lot of sense. So they made an investment there. So you're seeing, you're seeing um, those kinds of investments uh, from the major airlines. And then also on the urban air mobility side, you're seeing the auto companies get into the business. So Toyota is one of the biggest investors in Joby Aviation. And, uh, and then finally, you're seeing the private aviation guys get connected into, into some of these regional markets. So Blade, which is a big um, potential customer for beta technologies, is uh, involved in regional aviation and urban air mobility, but they've also pulled in one of the largest uh, private aviation charter operators, Jetlinks, into sort of that system of provision for, for their business. So uh, different kind of world. You've got small airports, right? There's 19,000 of them. You've got small aircraft, you know, nine to 50 seats. You've got a different kind of customer. They're traveling regionally. It's just completely different. Yeah, we interviewed the CEO of Blade last year, and it was that very interesting what he had to say, David. Yeah, no, Rob. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. I, like actually expanding on that a little bit, we spoke to, to Rob, and you know their their thesis is they kind of want to be the Uber of this this kind of like you know um, semi semi urban slash regional network. Um, we're you know publishing a, an op-ed actually in, in Focuswire, um, and the, the premise of it is you know kind of we're entering a integration phase um, of mobility away from, like and leaving the onboarding phase, meaning like we've had a lot of you know spent a lot of time um, in terms of just getting people online, getting you know Uber displacing taxi dispatch systems and phones, and now we're going to start integrating them together. And one of the patterns we've seen is the merging of regional, local, and national transportation. And you just mentioned how some of the urban guys are now investing in air taxi stuff. And then also United Airlines is investing in basically air taxi stuff. And they all seem to be dabbling in each other's kind of, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're overlapping now. How do you see this panning out? And Blade is one thesis, you know, uh, one way of looking at it. They, they're doing stuff from Manhattan to the airport, but they're also doing Manhattan to Miami. And they're, mm -hmm. they're one network, the Blade network. How, what do you see the future of networks are if not divided by national United Airlines, you know, airline uh, network map and Uber's, you know, local city map? What is what does that future network look like? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at if you look at the commercial network, I think that's the place to start and how it works. The reason that it's focused in 150 airports is that the engines have gotten bigger. The aircraft have gotten bigger. The costs fall when you get bigger aircraft with bigger, more efficient engines. And sometime, sometime take a look at the 737 in, you know, when it first came out versus the 737 today. It had a round engine when it came out. And now it has kind of this oblong engine because the airframe 
was designed for a different size engine and it would have been too low to the ground with the size of the modern engines, you know, which is partly, you know, part of the story of the MAX crisis that Boeing had um, where, you know, if you put an engine on an airframe that it wasn't originally suited for, you have to compensate in some way. So, you know, those networks run to 150 airports because you can get high load factors and you can get good asset utilization and you drive down the cost and that drives up demand. So now if you look at private aviation on the other bookend, um, you've got a different situation where you've got almost 40% 40, 40 of the flights run empty. And instead of having 10 hours of utilization a day on the aircraft, you have one hour a day. And then if you, if you look at the economics behind that, um, a lot of private aviation ends up having managed aircraft. So an owner use, lets an operator use that aircraft for you know, some period of time in return for some compensation, which usually actually doesn't fully compensate for the capital cost of the aircraft. And then you look at Uber, you know, way, way out on the other end of a network management thing. And that's all demand, all on demand stuff, but the density is pretty high and the asset cost is not being fully compensated for to the driver. You know, they're really contributing their asset for no return on significant return on that asset. And so if you're going to run a network where you own aircraft, the lesson of this is, and you want to make it affordable, you've got to keep utilization high. So, you know, my view, and, and this might be controversial, you know, there are some people out there who are saying, oh, we're going to run this like Uber. And actually, Rob doesn't fall into this category, even though he might say things like that. I, I don't know, but he, he actually understands this very well. You can't do it because if you run it like Uber, you're going to end up with 50% of your flights being empty. And so you need a dense network. And so what Rob's doing, and I, and I think he's really smart to do this, is he's picking points that he thinks he can run uh, you know, fairly efficient shuttle services for really short haul routes. And he's just stacking up the aircraft and rotating them through. And that's what get, gets you load factor and high asset utilization. Regional air mobility is a, a, different, a different thing because then you're talking about usually fixed wing aircraft and you're talking about reservations and you know, a different kind of connectivity that isn't really commuter related. Um, so I'd say, I'd say on the urban side, you're going to see some concentration points where you try to get very high volumes of aircraft trips into those concentration points. And in terms of regional air mobility, I think you're going to see it into, and those may be new concentration points, by the way, you're going to see it into regional airports, but you're going to see service that is, you know, schedule that needs to run at very, very high load factors for it to work. And those are the routes that are going to get served. But the idea that we're going to have a network that looks on demand, there might be a product like that, but it's going to be a product for very rich people because it's going to be very expensive. Brilliant. I want to end with uh, one last question. So you alluded to the LC, uh, low cost carrier um, opportunity in Mexico and anywhere else in the world you feel has largely evaporated. Um, 
but you know, there's a, a trend sometimes in Silicon Valley where investors will publish a, a call for startups um, saying, here are these six, you know, different things that I, you know, I've noticed uh, are needed. And obviously, you know, 20 years ago, you, you know, you answered your own call for startups for a, a low cost carrier in Mexico. Um, what are your current call for startups? It doesn't have to be, you know, a new airline, but just anywhere from the tech, the hardcore technology side, um, all the way up to, you know, the operational side. Yeah, so I think there's still, by the way, I think there's still low-cost carrier opportunities. It's improving on business models. The greenfield opportunities, I think, have, have largely evaporated. Um, the, the place where I really see the opportunity right now in sort of this next generation aviation is in light drones. Um, and so the, the value chain there is, you know, largely served by DJI right now. And so there's a whole set of a whole set of component suppliers and kind of value chain addition that can be done there and applications that can be put on those platforms. So I think that's one area that we're going to see just an enormous amount of growth in. And so, you know, when you're when you're able to fly something around um, and and do something that you otherwise would have had to have done with a person in a car, but you can do that with basically aerial robotics. That's going to be an enormous opportunity. So we've we've looked at one really interesting computer vision company that you know literally can have a drone fly around and and it can identify visual markers. So they were they were they had an application in Australia where they could tell whether people were standing within six feet of each other, whether they had masks on and whether they were facing each other to identify COVID risk at, at commuter stations. So things like that. Um, and then the next, the next areas that I would say is for larger aircraft, I think it's in freight and the various uh, components that are gonna facilitate freight vehicles and probably in, uh, in specialized applications like first responder vehicles. Uh, and then hybrid electric conversions of existing aircraft and regional air mobility. Those three things, I think, are immediate. The, the UAM stuff, um, further out. Bigger aircraft with electric or hybrid electric propulsion, further out. Um, the, the, that's big dollars. And, um, and it's, you know, it's going to take some time to get that put together. Interestingly, um, another area that I think is really interesting is autonomy. And that's sort of uh, partial autonomy, I think will be, you know, very, very effective. Just getting pilots out of the cockpit and into a piloting station on ground would, would save a lot of money and, and certainly make things a lot safer. Uh, drone delivery, interesting. Uh, I think there's a lot of issues with it inside urban areas, just in terms of safety, airspace control and stuff. But if you do that, if you get the, the autonomy step done properly in rural areas could be a very powerful concept. So that's related to, related to freight. But I think the biggest freight opportunities in, in mid-mile freight. Um, so those are, those are some of the use cases that I think are gonna be interesting. And then, you know, there's all of the software facilitation of all of that stuff, all of the components. There's lots of airport opportunities, I think, particularly in Europe, but not in, in the US on the infrastructure side. So there's a whole ecosystem that's gonna have to be built. But if you're, if you're an investor, I think you wanna focus on the things where you're gonna see cost inversions and you're gonna see things that can get to market in the next couple of years at really competitive pricing 
to, you know, to see rapid growth. Uh, very quickly, Dean, and last, last question from us then. I mean, we've interviewed many startup founders who have come at something where arguably the barriers to entry are quite low from a cost perspective. And I wonder whether some of those elements that you've just talked about there, Dean, you know, there's drone delivery and this, that, and electric propulsion and all those kind of things. I imagine those might be fairly difficult markets to enter just because of the cost of the assets that you need to be involved in. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, aerospace platforms are hugely expensive. I mean, you know, Joby doesn't have a commercial product deployed yet um, or certified yet. They have a, a product. Um, but, you know, they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars. So uh, there's different there's different levels of complexity, but anytime you get into aerospace and certification, it's going to cost more money and take more time. In some ways, it changes the dynamic, though, because once you have something that's certified, even if it hasn't been fully commercialized, it has a lot of value because there's a lot of entry barriers there. So it's, it's going to be a different dynamic than your typical um, software investing that we've seen so much of out of Silicon Valley over the last few decades. Uh, this is going to be more hardware and software or even hardware. A lot of it's going to be capital intensive up front. A lot of it is going to be military facilitated with non-dilutive fun um, non funding or NASA facilitated to help these ideas get off the ground. So there's, there's a completely different path for entrepreneurs in this space and a completely different set of risks. And, and those risks, I think, are manageable. And there's funding out there to take these things over the finish line, but you need to be very thoughtful about uh, your strategy. And obviously a minimum viable product strategy doesn't work very well when you have people on board your aircraft. You need to make sure it absolutely works, so. And that's a, that's a very good point to end on. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dean Donovan, for joining us on How I Got Here this week. Guys, thanks very much. Okay, uh, you've been listening to another episode of How I Got Here. That's Focuswire and Mozio's weekly podcast where we talk to the entrepreneurs and innovators in travel, tourism, hospitality and transportation. Uh, if you're not a subscriber to our podcast, then you can do so very easily by going to iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual places and subscribing there. You'll get each episode every Thursday in your inbox. So do that. And once again, thanks ever so much to Dean. And on behalf of David and I, thank you very much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.